Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, ladies and gents, we are back and we are closing out a incredibly wicked hot summer month with none other than Kyler Romeo, MOT, OTRL, 
S-C-F-E-S-I-B-C-L-C. Y'all, she's she's all the things. And in case you didn't know, Kyler is here to talk about NICU discharges and the evidence and the current best practice position statements for NICU discharges, which directly impacts everybody in the world of NICU, early intervention, home health, peds outpatient, and all around. But also, Kyler is the Director of Strategic Initiatives with Feeding Matters. Erin and I are huge friends of her and her energy and her knowledge base, and she has her hands in a ton of additional boards and research projects, and she's got a half a basketball team at home, and I don't know how she does it all, and I am in awe of her. So, Kyler, thank you for joining Erin and I today. <laughs> of course. My pleasure. I always love spending time with both of you. Yay. Oh, okay, well, let's just start right out the gate. How's everybody doing? Erin, Aaron, how's the upstate doing this summer? It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere smells so hot. And all my kids want to play out. We're hitting like 110 in Tucson. So I'm just curious, like, what is everyone else's experience right now? We've gotten to like 103, at least, but it's humid here. So it's like everything is so sticky. <laughs> that is not yeah. good for the cell planner. No. <laughs> no. And they no. wear a lot of it down here. So it's. <laughs> Sorry, one of my patient's mom took her shoes off and I didn't realize she must have spray tanned with her shoes on. So when she took them off, there was a distinct line and she goes, yeah, that was a newbie mistake. But like there was an orange line under the, okay, sorry. Yes, that's not, not, not good. I've never done this spray tan. Okay, Annalisa, if you're listening, you know, I'm going to tease you. Our sweet friend Annalisa in New Orleans has a lady that comes and she spray tans in a pop-up tent in her kitchen. Yes. And I think that's adorable and hysterical. And is a definite win if you're having to hit the pool. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm in my 40s. It's it's kind of necessary now. The process has gotten longer and it includes a spray tan. Dude, I just take my pasty white self and all the fabulous cellulite and just roll on out there. <laughs> uh, that's just because we're well fed, right? We're in the business of feeding yeah. ourselves and other people. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, wait. All right, guys, I'm going to do a shameless plug just because she said fed. Folks, if y'all don't know, rate this very minute until the end of July. So you have like, what, a handful of days left. PlaySpark, we've collaborated with PlaySpark. And right now they have a t-shirt for sale that says fed is fed is fed. And it's a quote from the book, Chasing the Swallow. And that sweet little quote for a dollar, a dollar of every shirt sold will go directly towards Feeding Matters and their initiatives. Hopefully the scholarship for our patients to get comprehensive diagnostic treatment to help offset the cost. So go get yourself a shirt. It has a boob on it. I think that's awesome. So it good. also has feeding tube equipment and a bottle. And formula because some children yes. need formula. Yes. Also, when the boys saw it, they were like, Mom, you can't wear a shirt that's got a boob on it. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so like, yes. Okay. So there's that. And formula. Formula, all the things. But shameless plug for Feeding Matters. Please know Aaron and I are making no money on this. This was just a an opportunity to put good in the world. 
I think it's such a conversation starter too, Michelle, because when you brought this quote to attention when we were doing the pre-con for Feeding Matters, in case people don't know, Michelle was our guest speaker and just welcomed and received with open arms by every stakeholder that was present from our educators to our families and to the professionals. People kept going back to that quote because it's just applicable across every aspect of feeding. I mean, it resonates with our families and our parents, and it also resonates with professionals. So it kind of gives us like a really humanistic way of approaching people when we're talking about all the different ways that kids are fed when they're leaving the NICU, for example, like what we're chatting about later today, or how they're eating in their homes. And you're so right. Fed is fed is fed. Yes. And I love, and that's their motto for their shirts too, is like, I wear them because people ask like, what does presumed competence mean? What does, what does neurodiversity affirming care? And like, now I can wear a shirt and people can be like, A, why is there a boob on your shirt? And B, (laughs) what is this quote about? And it's great. I remember Michelle saying that as a student, when I was her student, she's like, this kid has a feeding tube. Fed is fed is fed. This is what it is. And it's joyful. I'm going to see if we can have, you know, in our Nikki, we always have to wear scrubs. You know, each discipline has their own color. The therapy team, sadly, used to be UPS Brown. Oh my God, that's Pope Why Brown. did they do that to you? We were rocking the brown for years and years and years. And then some miracle of miracles, they changed the color and we got promoted to gray to a cooter <laughs> brown. And it, life-changing, right? Just life-changing that now I got to wear a gray to work. But on special months when we're doing a fundraiser, whether it's for like NICU awareness or like PFD, we can lobby to wear t-shirts with our gray scrub pants. And so I'm going to see if we can get t-shirts and I can get them for my team. Oh, I love that. Yes. And they're they're cream and or what is it? Like like a a sagey hunter green. Yeah. Cute. And then canvas bags so that when you engage in bagless early intervention therapy, but yet you still have to have your car key, cell phone, wallet, and your laptop, you can put that in your fabulous bag that with the boob and formula and G-tube equipment. Love it. Um, yes. Okay. All right. Back. <laughs> I'm blushing and uncomfortable and I broke out in a hot sweat because that's what I do. Now. Kyler, I appreciate you also because Michelle never toots her own horn and I have to do it a lot. So it makes her very uncomfortable, but she needs to hear it sometimes. Like I literally broke out in a sweat. I'm on, I'm on team toot. I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> Okay, so back to the NICU. Okay, so Kyler has her specialty. All right, let me clear the air. I said this the last time we collaborated together, and I'm going to say this again for everybody in the back. Y'all, speech language pathologists do not own dysphagia and pediatric feeding disorder. This truly is an interprofessional practice partner approach. If you stay as a silo clinician, you will never expand your skill set and never meet your child's needs. And one of my favorite allied health IPP partners is to collaborate with an OT because if that child is not regulated, nothing will happen. And OTs have a huge ownership over the oral preparatory and oral stages of those swallows. That's and, and everything else that happens because 
it's such a team, right? And I'm thinking like long-term torticollis patients and how that can deviate the larynx and why we work with OTs there too. And it's so intimately intertwined. And just as SLPs have their BCSS advanced certifications that we can pursue in order to be subject matter experts in the area of swallowing, OTs have their advanced certifications. And Kyler, can you start us off with what does that SCFES thing stand for? (laughs) Of course, absolutely. And thank you for kind of bringing attention to this subject because I do not want to work with these families in isolation. Yes. You know, these cases are so complex psychologically, physiologically, functionally, and it's it's such a large responsibility to be a teammate in any child's care. Yeah. And so I find so much confidence and like solace in working within a team. I don't want to be the only voice at the table because, you know, I could miss something. And I also, I just, I love learning from, you know, from my counterparts and all the other disciplines, but the SCFES is a specialty board certification that we can earn through our national organization, which is AOTA, the American Occupational Therapy Association. And it's quite an arduous process. So um, there's not very many of us in the country that have earned this certification. I think there's probably less than 50 because it's a, you know, it's a multi-year competency and proficiency and application process. But it is for OTs that are really trying to advance practice in the area of feeding, eating, and swallowing. I had my own NICU do all of my own instrumentation. So OTs can do fees studies. We do swallow studies. We do bedside clinical evaluations of the swallow. And sometimes that's just um, people aren't aware. It depends on where you are in the country and who's doing what. And where I am in Tucson, we are a PTOT team in our NICU. So our OTs are our feeding specialists with myself doing the diagnostics. And then we partner with our physical therapists and our physical therapists are looking at it from a developmental perspective, but they also are instrumental on our team for feeding these babies, for implementing plans of care and providing input to the team on how that baby is progressing and feeding. So I'm glad we're having the discussion and Hopefully, you know, the more people hear it, the more they realize that they're probably already surrounded by a team. They just may not be utilizing the professionals that that have that interest in supporting this child's care. And as SLPs, I got to tell you, we're never really taught in, unless you have a specific clinical, you're not taught how to engage with OTs, much less PTs. And so that's, it's kind of scary. Like PT, OTs and PTs, I feel like y'all get way more exposure and training and how to engage as a team. But like SLPs, man, we're just kind of, we have a little bit of room for growth. <laughs> well, we have a PT intern right now at our clinic who was like, she's going to PT school. She was like, I wanted to learn more about speech. And so I like wanted to volunteer as an intern at your clinic. And I was like, first of all, that's amazing. You're going to be a fantastic clinician. And second of all, it's like, yes, an OT, I would have seen more, but it's, I think PT and speech OT is like the bridge sometimes for, for, cause I feel like yeah. they overlap so much with both. 
But if you really think about I mean, PT and speech also overlap. I think we just, we very much speak different languages. Right. But you just have to learn how to speak the same language. It's like we, we're, spe- we're speech pathologists. And yet, <laughs> sometimes we like don't know how to shift to another mindset or viewpoint. And we love speech. We're not knocking speech. No, no. And I think OT is just, we, we're like right in the middle. We're in this gray mm-hmm. zone because we have to, you know, we're doctoral level now as is PT and we have training in motor systems. Like we have to do dissection. I did in, at my university, we did dissection and gross anatomy with a cadaver for an entire semester. And so we have a really strong background in physiology and motor system and motor understanding but then we also have a coat standards for for dysphagia and swallowing and feeding. That's a requirement of ours as well. So we're like we're we're just middleman. We're in the middle, and some people go one direction with their continuing education and training, and other people go in different directions. So you know, it just it really just depends on that clinician. Maybe we just need to start asking the clinicians, "What are you interested in? Where is your training? Yeah." <laughs> How can you contribute to this team instead of just assuming based on the letters, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I get asked all the time. So like you're, when, when like I'm meeting my husband's coworkers, they're like, so your speech, do you like help kids talk? And I'm like, oh, right. oh, I, I actually tend to make that worse because talking is difficult for me. So like multisyllabic words, tap, change, next. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so you all right, I have I have to get us we'll squirrel and go down that soapbox and I know that about the three of us. Okay. We are here to talk about specifically to a very large document and guideline that came out. And on that note of being able to say something, the National Association of Perionitology. Am I I butchered that. What, what is that word? That how do I say that? This is the National Perinatal Association. It's from the MPA. They were the leaders in the creation of this consensus statement. Okay. And it was published in the Journal of Perinatology, but the organization is the MPA. Okay. And (laughs) so this is what makes me think of, I had never heard of perinatal care until grad school and the OTs were like, we, well, we have to assist with perinatal care. So when I hear that, I think in my head, it's where you learn to wipe a katukus. But this is more than learning to wipe a katukus. So can you please talk about what this association is to preface the discharge planning from? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the National Perinatal Association is affiliated with the Journal of Perinatology. And this is a nonprofit organization that really paves the way and leads the charge in providing family-centered comprehensive care to families within the NICU. And so if you if you go onto their website, you'll see that they have a variety of different resources. There is a, a membership opportunity for organizations. So many institutions and NICUs will be members of the MPA but they are also publishing the Journal of Perinatology. And then they have other resources. They have pretty robust educational resources. They have an annual conference, access to memberships and publications. 
But what we're talking about specifically today is their publication on a consensus statement for how we as a community need to be preparing our families to discharge from the NICU and transition from an acute care setting into a community-based setting. Because if you've if you've talked to families, this is a very arduous time. It's a difficult transition, especially with children that have long-term illnesses or have been critically ill and required months long in ICU stay, that they go from this very high level of care <clears throat> to being turned out into the world and having to, to take full responsibility for every aspect of this little person's care. Sometimes it, I would say it feels quite abrupt to many families. I One thing that we don't do a great job on our end is like from like an early intervention home health perspective is realizing how difficult that trauma is mm-hmm. and fully of like the trauma of having had all of that support. And then all of a sudden you went from a fully staffed NICU to now you're in the house yeah. and it's, this is more than newborn parenting. This is patients are coming home attached to all sorts of tubes and, additional supports and still have to do medicine administration. And a lot of our parents kind of become like an honorary doctor in the, in their own right. Uh-huh. And on this side, that's really scary. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and their success at home really depends on the family's confidence and competence and owning the care for their infant, because it may be a child that, had a shorter NICU stay or wasn't complicated from a medical perspective and they're discharged into the community versus a family that has a child that may be quite medically complex and continue to need respiratory support, nutritional support, you know, a wide variety of subspecialty care. But regardless of the medical complexity at the time of discharge, the families still need the same level of support. And sometimes it, we can drive our educational focus and our resources to children that are more critical, but every family needs to eat, needs equal opportunity for that education and that preparation. Their child, their child is their child, right? Yes. And that makes me think of our sweet friend, Renee Garrett. She's um, up in Virginia. She actually works with adults, but one of her passion projects is health literacy. And right. Yes. I love that. But when she talks about like the health literacy and the state of health literacy, it's regardless of the continuum of that child's need, we have to empower the parents to be literate with respect to, yes, all of the things. Renee, you say it best. I think when I see my families, because I worked in the NICU for a little bit and I like explained, I think when they don't have to explain it, like, you know, I was not a parent in the NICU, but I, I know that environment, like I know that side of it. And so they feel like they don't have to explain that experience. But one thing that I'm really passionate about is like Michelle, like you said, the empowering, because I think Kyler, like even children that are in the NICU for a couple of days, that parent thought they were going to 
have that baby and then be in control and be able to be responsive and be able to feed their baby the way that they wanted to. And the second they go into the NICU, they don't have as much of that control. And there's a doctor in charge, a nurse that's helping. And so I think you then have to help build back up their confidence because A, there's that guilt of why are they there in the first place? I don't trust myself as much. I don't trust my body. I don't trust my gut and my instinct. And so how I have to build back, like they have to build back up their confidence. And when we have kids that are on two feeds, I think I have see a lot of parents after the NICU where they see their child being uncomfortable, but they're like, but I can't stop the feed because they told me I have to get this much and I don't want to be told I'm not doing a good job. And so like, how do we empower our parents to say, you know, your child. And if you're seeing something, trust that. Yeah, you trust yourself, but that's a hard transition when every, it took this many people to take care of my child in the NICU, and then you're expecting me to do it. That's such a good point. I think that's an excellent point because those first critical decisions on how you respond to your infant often aren't driven by the parent; it's driven by the medical team, and that's because it's that is a necessity to sustain. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely medically necessary so that these children survive but it's not in the hands of the parent. So you kind of think of the continuum of your learning experience as a new parent. I remember thinking when I had my first, when we had Jax, that they're going to let me take this child home. Like I just, I have delivered this baby. I have this baby and I'm just going to walk out the door with the child. It, It felt like bizarre to me that I was now responsible of raising a human being. And that was a typical hospital stay. I mean, I had a C-section, but it was a normal hospital stay without complications. And I still had those feelings. A C-section. I feel like, C- I mean, Goose cost me 25 stitches and he popped out my tootie ta. And thank you, pelvic floor PT. On that note, every woman listening anywhere should do pootie PT. It's a thing. Do the Google. Find you a practitioner that you trust. Greatest decision of my life. Also. Caffeine can induce sneeze peeing. It's a factor. But C-sections, oh my God, you women earn all the gold stars. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just thinking that those are that's this entire like mental process that you go through as being a new parent that oh, I'm responsible for all these decisions. And so normally we get to go through it within a normal time frame, right? You get to go home with your baby. You see your PCP within a few days. The babies are physiologically driven to eat. They have all these oral reflexes in place that help them eat and they know how to communicate with their caregivers. And we respond to that communication. It's like this beautiful dance in the first few weeks of life as you're learning your baby and how to take care of your baby. And our families in the NICU are not going through the typical parental developmental process of learning to how to care for their babies. And then they're discharged home. And so then it it kind of, what I like about these, this consensus statement is it puts into print a charge to all of us in acute care and on the medical side to recognize the importance of the role of the parent from the time the baby is delivered. Yeah. And so discharge planning starts from the time of delivery. It should start from the time of delivery. And these guidelines really put these pieces together 
So we can review what is recommended and kind of see where we're falling on this continuum of preparing our families for discharge. Can I just extend that and say, I truly think our job is to prep for discharge when we enter, even in all settings, because you have some families that will view therapy as like a, we always have to have this mm-hmm. and then trying to say, no, you are empowered. And this is where your child, I like, dude, we've hit it. We've nailed it. We've crushed it. You don't need us. But remember when you go in on that date of eval, create your long-term trajectory and empower the parents to get out even in home health, outpatient and the public schools. Okay. Sorry. Passion thought. Oh, so Michelle, I have a quick question about that because I love that you're, uh, oh, I love that you're bringing up the, the entire, you know, the concept of discharge planning is being applicable to absolutely every setting. And I a hundred percent agree with you. This is one of my kind of passion topics is looking at episodes of care and how we are, you know, integrating the family. So question is when you have your first sessions with families, do you talk about discharge from the get-go? Like how do you frame it out for your families? Seek to understand what are your goals? Mm-hmm. And and I phrase it like, okay, so I've got a couple kiddos that are AAC and feeding. A couple kiddos. That's a lot of kiddos. And what is your, what would you like us to accomplish in our time together? And, and when I phrase it like that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm setting the stage for in our time together, what are we going to do? Okay. And before therapy ends, what is your, what do you want long-term? Are you looking for a variety of foods? Are you looking for like completely PO? And I'm not using those technical terms, but Right then and there in our time together, what do you want us to work on before we're done with therapy? I love that with our time together. Yeah. Adding that so that like you're constantly kind of populating that conversation mm-hmm. with the fact that like I'm a teammate. Yeah. Right. I'm a partner. I'm a coach. But you're recognizing that they're the parent and they're the person that's going to be really deciding on what this plan looks like and how they choose to implement it at home. And just adding those few words can make a huge difference in how they're seeing themselves in the therapy relationship. Yeah. And I think I, and and Michelle and I have had a lot of these conversations even recently, I very much go in and talk with families about how I am a tool. I am a resource for you. Mm -hmm. I am not someone that's going to come in and tell you how to raise your child, or yes. I will guide you based on development and based on my knowledge of prognosis and diagnoses and what I'm seeing. But I even have, and I was talking to Michelle about this recently, I even have a couple of families where like the child is continuing to progress at a fantastic level. They're medically stable. They still have a lot of progress they can make, but caregivers got it. Like I have a couple of families where I'm like, you have it, you have the tools, you know what you're doing. And I've discharged, even though there's progress to make, because I, the, the parent is basically a therapist at this point. I have, we have navigated this. I trust mm-hmm. them. They trust themselves. And I don't need to come in every week to tell them the exact same thing that they already know. That's not functional. And I think I've been having this conversation too. Like there's such a need and there is such a shortage that 
we have to, they're not, we're not going to have a bunch of new schools coming up in the next five. I mean, they're trying, but it takes a long time. So we have to ship is it episodic care. You have to look at your caseload and be like, okay, what really am I doing? Because we have, if we want to serve more kids, we have to have those conversations. And you know, that also protects our funding sources. Like if we're really going to kind of stand out and look at broad implications and why it's so important for us to provide episodes of care and episodic care, it's, it's back to funding because it really does show that you're, you have a judicial viewpoint on looking at care so that persons with the highest need are the persons receiving that care to improve overall health outcomes. And what you're saying is that, you know, you did a transfer of knowledge and you've built skill in the person that needs it the most, which is the caregiver, right? When we're talking about our young children and eating, that's the time to discharge. Okay. So what are the specific, when we're looking at NICU discharge guidelines? Yes. And and this is something that I know nothing about I mean, Bear was in the NICU, but I mean, I was on the receiving end and and just had a giant preemie. So what what are we, what are they? Okay. I'll kind of give you guys just a brief rundown and then we can talk a little bit about how to use the guidelines. And I think it's really applicable no matter what your area of practice is, because these sorts of transition guidelines are applicable to any environment. It gives you an overview of you know, things that we need to include when we're trying to get our families ready for a different type of care or to, to leave our own care. So you had asked earlier, what is, what is the MPA? And the MPA has their hands in education as well as advocacy because they are, their job is to promote evidence-based practice in perinatal care. What I love about this organization that's very symbiotic with how Feeding Matters approaches healthcare issues is that they've read the research, they know the evidence, these people know what works in the NICU, and they're not trying to replicate the work that other people have done. Instead, they look at partnerships and bringing together all these people that um, are developing the evidence so that they have an interdisciplinary view and collaboration effort when they move forward with something such as this, which is the publication of a consensus for how to prepare families for discharge. So when you're using the tools or you're looking at these publications, you know, you really can have a lot of confidence that you were represented, that families were represented, you as the therapist has are represented in these documents, our nurses are, every aspect of our medical team, patient advocates, and so on. So just so everybody understands what goes into the creation of these consensuses. And you know, this is a multi-year project, but if you go onto their website, you can find the publication, it's open access. So everyone has access and we're also going to uh, put it on the Feeding Matters website as well. We're going to put it in a blog so it's easy to find. And then it'll also be on our resource page because it is a scientific publication. So it'll be in that section as well if you want to find it through Feeding Matters. But the guidelines 
are broken into different sections and it gives you criterion or things that really should be included in each section. And then it provides you the evidence or why that criterion was included. So if you want to look at what the categories are, I just tell people go into that very first page, look at the abstract, look at the overview. There's also a poster presentation that I will share as well on the website. But the first step with our families is just basic information. We want them to understand how to care for the baby. And this is going over every aspect of education that we should be including when we're working with a family in our unit. So if you look at the document, it's quite extensive and it can be overwhelming to think that I need to educate families on every aspect of this care. But if you look at it a little bit deeper, then you realize these are the things that are absolutely vital for caring for a baby at home. Because I'm not, Michelle, you had mentioned, you know, bear being in the NICU. How long were you all in the NICU before you got to go home? 36 hours, 24, 36 hours. It was something like that. So bear's birth story. Um, yeah, you can't answer that one, Erin. Oh, that's funny. Wait, I'm going to write this time down. I'm going to write this time down. We got it. We had labor stopped 14 times to stay pregnant with bear. Oh my gosh. And I did three months of bed rest just shy of three months of bed rest. Cause I went on bed rest at week 23 and he came at week 35 and it was like 35 zero. Cause I went in at 34 six and they sent me home on week 35 zero. Like he was born six pounds, 12 ounces. Wow. Good for you. And I did not have diabetes or high blood pressure. He was just a giant baby. (laughs) And I mean, he has no meat on his bones. The poor kid eats more peanut butter because we're just trying to fatten him up a little. And I mean, he's just ribs because he's, well, he's got my ADD and my energy. So God help us all. One of the girls was like, do you want us to work on like following two or three step directions? And I was like, not really, because he's got straight A's at school. And if I give him a two or three step direction, he'll go in the other room, forget the second or third thing. But to be fair, he comes back and asks me and hell, I forgot what I was supposed to ask him in the first place. So like, we're fine. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not sure that's a great life strategy, but it works for Pac Dawson. Yeah, we're pretty. (laughs) Michelle, when you were in the NICU, so he was born at 35 weeks. How long was he in before he was able to go home? We went home two days later. Oh my gosh, he was young when you discharged. Oh yeah, they got us out really early, but he he was my second baby that I breastfed because I breastfed his big brother too. And he actually latched better than Goose did. Goose struggled to latch. And he was, Goose was 36 weeks. But Bear, I mean, he like literally came out the womb eating. I'm trying to think. God, I had I had really bad pregnancies. So they were stitching me up and handling mommy. Right. And so being born at 35 and going home at 35 and two, mm-hmm. did you have any concerns that he'd be able to stay home or did you leave kind of thinking, okay, I'm a seasoned nope. parent. I have breastfed. I've got this. How did you feel when you left? I was, I was terrified because of what we went through 
And then rightly so. He had bilirubin level issues. So we were back at the hospital on day three and he had a week of the billy lights. It looked like he was charged on an iPad. Mm. We got immediately off the billy lights after having been on for a week. And then Goose came home with RSV and Bear was 37 weeks. Bear got RSV because he was 37. So he was two weeks old. And we landed back in the hospital and he spent his first Halloween in the hospital with mommy on four liters oxygen nasal cannula. Oh. And we had just gotten through the Billy Rubin issues. But I had, dude, that child tried coming at week 23. I knew from the get-go he was going to be my eventful child. And since then, he has proven that accurate down to this very week. I went to pull his one loose tooth in the front and he turned his head at the last possible second and I pulled out the wrong tooth and then had to go back the day later and pull out the right tooth. So like So he has no front teeth right now. He has no front teeth. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I screwed that up royally. But I mean he he's had he's had a rough go. We've long term stuff. We've had failed hearing tests. We've had a bunch of surgeries. He had an inguinal hernia in his right testicle. I mean, my kid's a case study, but he is spunky, brilliant, passionate, and a crafty little kid. He has, he likes to knit people hats. They look like yarmulkes, but he likes to knit people hats. So we go with it. Well, it sounds like with, when it comes to his care, he was able to hit the discharge criteria, right? Obviously within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So he had like medical stability. He was able to prove that this little guy could eat and he was safe to go home. And what's so important, I think, in looking at the, in looking at these guidelines is when you're, when they're breaking the information into the different sections, the very first section that recommendations are issued for is just basic information. And this is in regards to the process of working with a family to help them just understand what transition looks like when they're going from NICU to home. They need to know what's required for their infant to discharge and what are they going to need to have in preparation for this baby to come home safely. And sometimes it's difficult to have those discussions early on with a family because honestly, the often we as the medical team do not know the outcome for the child. Yes. Particularly if they're quite critically ill. I mean, we have infants in our NICU right now that were born at 23 weeks because that's when you started having preterm labor. That's when you went on bed rest. Was that 23 weeks? Yes. And imagine if that, that baby came at 23 weeks, right? Such a different, mm-hmm. it would have been such a different pathway for your family. And that's what my OB kept saying. Every time I went into labor and I, you know, bless him heart, Dr. Addy, y'all, if you're looking for an amazing OBGYN and you live in the greater Midlands area of South Carolina, Dr. Douglas Addy is an outstanding human. And every time I went into labor, I was like, if he's born now, we're looking at this, this, and this. And he goes, your job is great for enlightening you to the potentials, but terrible for enlightening you to the potentials. And I was like, that it is. Mm. That it is. Yep. Such a good point. And so if these babies are born that early, 
uh, sometimes it's unclear of if they're going to survive. Mm-hmm. And it's also unclear of what sorts of supports they're going to need. I mean, it's, it's such a, a unique journey. We've had children born at 23 weeks that have not been able to sustain, you know, their life past the first year or two. And then we have families with babies that are born at 23 weeks and they have gone home by close to term age with very little support. So when you're having those first conversations, we really, what these guidelines help us understand is that every family needs a picture of what this journey potentially can entail, as well as us speaking to the point that this baby will go home eventually, or that is our plan. That's everyone's goal is for the baby to discharge home safely. So I really feel like we need to look at our individual units and our medical teams and our supports and start having these conversations and asking ourselves, are we having these conversations with our families and are we having them well? No, because on our end, sorry, that was a very strong reaction, but none as a parent, I can tell you that none of this potential was given. We barely even talked about elevated bilirubin levels and my kid needed to be plugged in, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's what my husband, that's what Christian kept saying. He's like, we just got to keep charging him, baby. He's going to be fine. <laughs> and like, plus, Mr. Dawson is the most patient man for the amount of events that we have um, uh, entertained in our <laughs> 12 years. But that's, it's not. And and then there's also that huge divide of simply getting down to the discharge for practitioner to practitioner. Mm. There's such a breakdown from the NICU SLP to the receiving SLP. Yes. Let's talk about that. What Ugh. what are people receiving out in the community when these children are being transitioned into their care? Nothing. Right. I have heard absolutely nothing. They have no discharge information. They know nothing of the NICU stay. And then what that often causes is for the community provider or practitioner to go through a very extensive interview process with the family because they need this information, right, to be able to provide comprehensive care. Yet our families are not in the position to recall this information because they've just been through a traumatic event. Yes. Yes. And I have an idea. Okay. Let's hear. So I love how y'all can't see me, but Aaron knows I start actual, my stems show when I get excited. And it's very, <laughs> I know that about myself and Aaron just smiles at me and just kind of nods, but like, okay, so here's my idea. I think that we need to do a legislative overhaul at the federal level and hold states accountable for this. And this is why we can do bottom up initiatives, one-to-one community outreach, right? Like where the community-based clinician reaches back to the NICU clinician, because in truth, there are maybe five to 10 NICU clinicians, but there's hundreds of community-based clinicians. And as busy as we are, we at least know who is in the NICU versus going the reverse. It doesn't easily filter that way, right? So I put the onus. So bottom up, but top down, 
when I asked for, and I made one heck of a great argument that when a patient is referred to an early intervention system, they should include discharge summaries from their most recent hospitalization and or progress note from their physicians, a list of current medications, a list of diagnostics, as well as a list of therapeutic restrictions, because some of our patients require therapeutic restrictions, right? But Mm-hmm. When I made this pitch at a state level with a state early intervention system, I was told, and I quote, this is not a medical model. This is a special education model. I, I hear what you're saying, but you're also billing Medicaid and private insurances for my services that are rendered. If that is the case, then ipso facto, it is in fact a medical model because I have to prove medical necessity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you with me? So what I think needs to happen is that within the framework for IDEA Part C, if you have a child that qualifies for IDEA Part C and they are in, yes, it is an academic model. However, I just heard my grandma say preach in my head. I'm sorry. But if you have that academic special education model, it should include the bare bones that I just mentioned from a patient safety perspective. That should be a legal mandate that the referral, the referring physician includes current known diagnoses, a list of all medications, a list of um, therapeutic restrictions, and and who's on that patient's team when that referral goes in. I need that discharge summary in order to create a competent evidence-based plan of care moving forward for patient safety. And I think that should be a federal policy overhaul. So I would like to propose that maybe Feeding Matters could work on that. Good team. Yay. I absolutely love it. I I do. And I think sometimes we have to go to the source, right? If we hit a barrier with the, at the federal level or even at the state level, right? Because that is a major overhaul. Then fix it. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm jazzed. We need to get a pilot. Like we need to find an EI system that's willing to look at this differently. Because I know when I was working in Texas, I was working for Therapy 2000, which was mm-hmm. a home health agency for pediatrics. And we had like seven, seven different cities. So it was, it was awesome because I was able to visit all my Texas cities, you know, in Austin and Houston and Lubbock and Dallas, Fort Worth anyway. But we worked with different EIs across the state. And this is within our own state, right? The same state yeah. under the same regulations. And what was being done where was so dependent on how it was interpreted, the resources of that community, and who was leading, who who those leaders were, right? And who was willing to do some things that were like maybe a better match for, for their community needs. So I do feel like there is potential to work on it from both sides of the coin. Like working, as you said, from the state and the federal for a legislative change while proving efficacy and figuring out like solving some of the glitches in the transference of medical information or perhaps knowledge from a pilot perspective as well. Wait, that's being done. Erin, isn't Allison doing that in Texas? Yeah. Allison Ware out in Texas, she's in the Austin, Texas area. She started a program with their NICU and she works for an early intervention, like a large early intervention company. So that's been her big project. So she's she's probably someone that would be an awesome resource for how they how they modeled that and what they modeled that after and how it's been going and to navigate that. 
And same for Smooth Way Home. Are y'all familiar with that program as well? I've heard of it. Yeah. With what? With Smooth Way Home. That's the brainchild of Joy Brown, who also does the Institute for Fragile Infants, which is amazing. They actually just got that started up again. So Joy Brown and Aaron Ross kind of lead that. And it's a this fantastic opportunity to go to a continuing education offering where they summarize the evidence. And it's a big research evidence dump within fragile, you know, feeding fragile infants. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. But Joy Brown, she's out of Colorado. She started Smooth Way Home, which is to address the gap in transition for families that do not qualify for EI, right? Because if you look at every state, qualifications Mm -hmm. are determined at the state level. And so like in Texas, I thought when I was there, I mean, I could be wrong because it's been a couple of years, but it was something like 25%. Like you need a 25% delay in one major area of development. In Arizona, we have to have 50% delay in two or more areas. Wow. So it's very difficult for children to qualify. And that's what- How is that legal? That's our state. (laughs) That is our state. And so Smooth Way Home was to address the families that did not qualify for EI. And to be able to give them access to specialists in their home so that they weren't falling, you know, in between the cracks and having major health issues with these young infants and children. And so that was, that was smooth way home. So how did I get onto this tangent with Texas and EI? Oh, I think just to talk about another stopgap solution to these types of problems do you have an update on Allison and what she's been able to accomplish in the ER? No, but honestly, I think it's gone well. On. <laughs> yes, yes, we should. Well, we spend what's interesting about early intervention in some of these other partnerships, these nonprofit partnerships, is it is there's much less red tape for them to be able to enter our NICU and participate in our discharge planning meetings because they are represented, they're funded by the state. And so it's part of, you know, like we're all kind of like sharing the same pots of money. So I know at our hospital, we're allowed to have representation from EI in our transition planning meetings. We also have opportunity to have communication with other programs available to us in our state, which is Smoothway Home is present in the state of Arizona, as is the high risk uh, perinatal program or also known as HRPP. So we have communication with those agencies. And that seems to me like the place to, to bring these things up and say like, what can we do differently? Because we always have issues with HIPAA. I would love to see how other people are solving this problem. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're working on it. Yes. I was ready to say there's a lot of boots on the grounds behind the scenes, but folks, when... And I don't know if you see this in the OT world, Kyler, but in the speech world, we hear, what is Asha doing for me? I'm going to get on a soapbox, ladies and gentlemen. You are Asha. You are your state associations. Asha cannot pay to have a lobbyist at each individual state level. Your state association pays to have a lobbyist represent them to make these changes at a state level. And that's why you join them so that you can be an 
active voice and an active volunteer to work to f- identify the problems and then pro- come up with potential process improvements and then create the source of change for the positive outcome. And IPO, input, process, output. That's what my husband says, which kind of cracks me up because all I can hear is the PO part and that makes me funny. (laughs) But there we are. So this is where we can volunteer. Yes. And I love how you also gave the charge to bring the solutions to the table. Yeah. Because you can't sit and fuss about a thing. Otherwise, nothing gets done. Right. Right. We need to say that this is an issue. And guess what? We have a solution. Yeah. Will you give us, you know, share your confidence in us and help us implement this solution? And then our responsibility is to bring it back to you and say, this is how it's going. Yes. And this is how I think it could stretch further in our state. And I, I feel like that's how then we can get, we can really lobby for state and federal level legislative change. Well, and especially with feeding, like I, I see so many kids that like the months leaving the NICU are like some of the most vital to like prevent feeding aversion and to coach parents. And so if I'm spending the first two months figuring out what their plan was, what their swallow study looks like, why they are MPO, Mm -hmm. what's going on, who's on their team, that's two months that I'm doing what I can, but, but it's not the best plan for them because I don't have all the information. So it's really, really important for all of their development to get them and get the team on board and utilize this and understand what happened in the NICU and understand what their discharge plan was. And this will help with that because we'll understand from the other side. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure we've all had that experience where you have a short window of exposure with a family. Like I also do the outpatient swallow studies at my hospital. And I have had families come in and I, of course I go through the interview process, but you imagine these are a 30 minute time slot. Yes. You're not getting any documentation to help you prepare. And I have to see the child. I need to see the child eat. I need to know what's going on in the home. Like what are they looking to accomplish? Because otherwise they're not getting the information that they need for this to even be like an, a, a functional instrumentation. And I've had a family come in and we went through the interview and I kept having to dig in deeper and dig in deeper to realize that this child had a laryngeal cleft. Oh my God. Yes. Right. <laughs> that had been repaired, completely changed my approach to instrumentation, what I was looking for, what I knew to look for, and then what recommendations were following. And that is just one, one example of interacting, you know, with a family where I could have seriously missed something that could have impacted that child's health. And think about our kids, our, our children with critical health needs, discharging from home from the hospital. If the home therapist or the home medical team does not have this information in place, we really are putting ourselves in a position where we could create, be creating harm within a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because per the usual, we're going to go over. <laughs> can you wrap up the big takeaways? What? Wait, one, where can people find these resources that you, you talked about? That sounds like a good idea. I'll give you an idea of where to find them so you can do your own deep dive into the consensus statement. And just know that these guidelines cover multiple aspects 
of preparation for home. So first they're gonna give you information about basic information that families need, how to prepare them for the discharge process, and then, then they're gonna go into some other nuances of doing a family and a home needs assessment, which is so critical to know how people are living at home, what resources they have, and what safety concerns are present. And then it gives you a criterion for how to transfer knowledge and how to coordinate care with other persons. And then it also dives into other important considerations, such as families that are in the military, families that are from other ethnic backgrounds, for families that have perhaps socioeconomic disparities. So it, it dives into other specific populations so that you can get some assistance in how to apply this consensus to, uh, to all of your clientele. But where you would find this is on the National Perinatal Association website, which is nationalperinatal.org. And then it also will be posted in the Feeding Matters website, which is feedingmatters.org. Our friends and nonprofits here, you'll be able to find it under the resource page. And we also will be doing a blog. So sometimes I think the easiest way is to jump onto the blog and just do your search for MPA or NICU so that these resources populate easily. The next good step I would recommend to everyone who is listening is to familiarize yourself, well, with a additional web page that's been created by the National Perinatal Association that is called NICUtohome.org. And that's where all these resources will live and new resources will be added as they're developed. Ways to implement the, these criterion into your own unit or how to bridge the criterion into community practice. That's where you would go to. That's your landing page is NICUtohome.org. Okay. And I'm rapid fire writing these down and screenshotting the resources that you gave so that we can add them to our social media feed. Erin, I just dropped them in the um, shared album lady. Okay. What parting words of wisdom do you have for us, Kyler? Oh, goodness. Parting words of wisdom. <laughs> I would say this document really calls us to act, to continue the conversation. It brings to light the importance of every person that's part of a child's care with the family being the center of care and the family being our focus on all education and empowerment so that they feel confident taking care of their child and leaving and leading the medical plan once they are transitioning into the community setting. We want our families to leave knowing that they have a voice and where to go to find support for these fragile infants. Every conversation matters, our words matter, and our actions matter. So I hope that everyone finds this document helpful and really leading the charge to preparing families for home life and enjoying their babies. Mm -hmm. Erin, what are your thoughts, lady? I know I love that. I don't think I can beat that. <laughs> We're very like, I mean, Michelle, like you said, it's, you have to take that initiative and do if you see something and, and there are these resources out there and I'm glad that we're shining light to these resources and no matter what setting you're in, 
it's important to also know what a patient went through when they were in the NICU and what a family went through when they were in the NICU and the trauma that may have happened there. And so even from that perspective to understand that, I think this is valuable for anybody because I guarantee you, no matter how old you see, how old the kids are that you see, a good portion of them had that experience. I think we need to get these resources on the peds dysphagia page for um, ASHA because I don't think that they're listed there because I visit that page a lot. We need to get it over to Rocky so she can run it through the SIGs. Yeah, this is a good one. As is, I don't know if she has it yet, but the NICU recommendation standards, the IFCDC has recommendations for best practice and developmental care. That's another excellent. That's hosted on the University of Notre Dame site. Okay. Yeah, that's Love another great one. That's All a good application right, too. Okay. Because I'm just thinking that would be good. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I love how after every single episode, Aaron, you and I's to-do list just gets a little. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> and then I randomly sent a text message. I'm like, I have an idea. And she's like, oh, God. <laughs> have y'all talked to Aaron Ross about these discharge, uh, about the developmental care standards? No, we had, we had Dr. Ross on about a year ago. And we talked about the Sophie method, but not about the developmental care standards. Okay, because she's on this one as well as Joy Brown. I don't know if you've ever interacted with Joy Brown about Smooth Way Home. No. Or Fifi, otherwise known as Fifi, which is the Fragile, the Fragile Infant Feeding Institute. And I went to that like back in the day, the first time they hosted it. And it, it literally was a week of 10 hours a day. Oh my God. Of literature dump. It was amazing. Like I left with great resources. But what I also loved about these ladies is that at the end of the day, they were like, everybody go get a bottle of wine (laughs) and like bring it to the table. And we would end our day with literature and cocktails. And I was like, I I can connect with these people, right? These are, these are, this is my time. (laughs) Okay. When you have us down to Aaron and I, okay, Aaron, we have to bunk for that one. And then to, can you please, folks, this is how we come up with our podcasting ideas real time right here. And not just because they drink cocktails at the end of a convention, but (laughs) but if you'd be so kind as to introduce us to Joy, that would be lovely. And I'll uh, I'll reach back out to Dr. Ross because that would be fantastic. Yes. I'll put them both on that one. I'll put Aaron and Joy. Awesome. About the developmental standards. And then I'm also going to introduce you to Charlene as the rep from the Institute of Perception Action Approach. And I'll send you a few little fun articles on that too, just so you have a bit of a background if you want to talk motor systems and motor and and, in reference to feeding support. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Well, stay tuned, ladies and gents. We've got, it looks like the fall planned for 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking forward to your shirt. So Michelle, you got to send me the info on that. Yeah. I'm going to share it with the team. I'm so excited. Yes. And I want to bring it to my NICU. Yes, absolutely. Everybody, we love it when you check us out on Instagram, First Bite Podcast on Instagram, First Bite Podcast on Facebook. Be sure to check the Linktree link on um, Instagram. We update them with upcoming live courses that we're presenting at. I believe we are a month away. I will be up at 
Nazareth College, brought over there by none other than Miss Elizabeth Betsy O'Brien and her fabulous room to bloom self. Thank you for having me. So join me the tail end of August. And then as always, tune in on Apple Podcast, and we love it when you give us a five-star review and use kind words. So thank you so much for tuning in and stay tuned because we literally planned out the rest of 2022. Okay, hold on. Thanks. (laughs) Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. 
I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.